Welcome to Fruitful and Multiplying, a podcast from the Jewish Fertility Foundation. I'm your host, Ilana Frank. The first commandment in the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. But what if, due to infertility, that path isn't so straightforward? This is a podcast about the fertility path less traveled. From the inspiring and the inspired, and the cutting-edge technology and science that continues to evolve to make it all possible. All right, here we go. What makes someone Jewish? From its painful historic connotations to its open invitation for exclusion, this is a loaded question. Yet, there is a deceptively simple answer. One is technically Jewish if their mother is Jewish. Of course, different sects of Judaism have different opinions on the answer. Even Israel's law of return contradicts this supposed rule of thumb. The complexity behind what makes someone Jewish has only increased as artificial reproductive technology or art has proliferated. Today, we have an opportunity to speak with three incredible humans who have helped make the answer to this question more inclusive to those born through art. Attorney Jessica Chaud fought to include children born to Jewish mothers by non-Jewish gestational carriers in the conservative movement's definition of Jewish. With the help of Rabbi Judith Hopman and Rabbi Suzanne Brody, Jessica actually got the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards to change their halachic position on non-Jewish surrogates. This is huge. All right. I am so excited to get to talk to you all today. Today we have Jessica Chad, Rabbi Judith Hopman, and Rabbi Suzanne Brody. We're super, super excited to have you on Fruitful and Multiplying. We are going to talk today first to Jessica. Jessica, let's start from the beginning. How how did you get in this conversation around surrogacy and working with these lovely, lovely rabbis? Let's start. Sure. So first off, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I remember a couple years ago when I first told you about this, um, audacious thing I was doing. I, you were just so supportive um, and so gracious with your time. So I really appreciate it. Um, so my connection to surrogacy and infertility in general is that when my husband and I um, decided to create our family and then later grow our family, we had some challenges and we were lucky enough to be able to take advantage of all the great advances in assisted reproductive technologies. And as a result, I have a fantastic daughter and an amazing son. And I carried my daughter and was pregnant with her and had her. And then when we went to grow our family again, we realized that we were going to need even more assistance than we did with my daughter. And so we reached out and used a gestational carrier um, who is amazing and her family was awesome. And without them, we just wouldn't have the family that we have today. Um, which makes me, you know, infinitely grateful and cognizant of all the advances in science and also just the capacity of other humans to do something so selfish, uh, selfless. And, um, I am fully aware that I would not have the family we have without, without all of that coming together. Um, so that's sort of my connection to the infertility world. Um, 
And you're Jewish, right? Yes, I'm Jewish. Sorry. Yeah. You're Jewish. You lead a Jewish lifestyle. I lead a Jewish life. I have a um, Jewish household and raise my kids Jewish within the conservative Jewish movement. And Rabbi Hoffman. No, I think Jessica needs to add that her gestational carrier was not Jewish. Correct. Talk to me about that. How did you make that decision? Um, So... I mean, basically, in general, most gestational carriers, they're, they're not, um, they're hard to find. And most of them are not Jewish. Um, in fact, there's even some literature out there in the conservative movement um, saying that they prefer that Jewish women not be gestational carriers. Um, but in general, when one is looking for a gestational carrier, you you, you take a look at who, who's out there and, and they don't tend to be Jewish. Um, and so ours was not. And um, so we knew going in, um, I'm not sure when I learned what the conservative Jewish rule, um, that existed was on the Jewish status of a child born using a Jewish egg. In this case, it was my egg, um, and a non-Jewish gestational carrier. But I learned well before my son was born, um, that the outcome was that the child was deemed not to be Jewish. Um, and that you would need to take the child to the mikvah um, and to be converted. How do you feel about that? Um, it it was it was really interesting. So I'm I'm like a researcher and a noodler at heart, and so I read all the all I could on it, and it really all it amounted to in the conservative movement was one paper, um, one teshuva, which was written around 1997. And as your listeners and you know. So much has changed since 1997. We've had so many advances in science, in general, the fertility world, U.S. law, and just also how surrogacy works. And it didn't really like mesh with my understanding of my situation and what I thought sort of the rational outcome would be. To me, it was like my DNA should lead to a Jewish child and, um, and, and that's not the outcome that was with the existing paper. So I didn't love it. I didn't love the fact. Where was your husband on all this? So like, we know you're an attorney, right? By day? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So nothing related to what the paper is. Yeah. <laughs> but you're like a researcher, right? You're really like digging in. Was your husband on the same page? Uh, my husband is incredibly support- supportive. Um, he would have likely been fine either way. Um, but he also did not feel like the outcome of the paper when applied to our situation made a lot of sense in light of science and sort of reality. And he understood why I thought it was problematic to take a child to the mikvah, which I find to be so steeped in meaning and importance when I didn't feel it was applicable because I felt my child was already Jewish and therefore not in need of a conversion. Um, and so he was very, very supportive along, along the way. Um, okay. So you're like stewing for several months while you're like, you know, yeah, watching your baby grow and somebody else's baby, you're like starting to like have feelings, doing your research. Then what? So it's interesting because a lot of people say that their fertility journey taught them patience. And, um, I remain horribly an impatient person. But um, infertility did teach me to sort of take challenges in the order that they come. So in my head, I sort of felt, you know, my first challenge at that point was growing my family and having, you know, what people refer to as a take home baby. 
And so I was really, I knew the rule, but I was laser focused on making sure that, um, you know, that our son was born healthy and, and came home. And I sort of naively thought that at the end of the day that I would just figure out how to fix the problem later um, once he was born. And so once he was born and we were able to take him home was when I had to sort of face the reality of, well, I was either going to um, concede and take my child to the mikvah. And I felt strongly I couldn't do that because I'd be doing it with sort of like anger or resignation, or I was going to have to either ignore sort of the advice and just continue on, um, or I could try to fix it. And so I naively decided that it was going to be super easy. I was, it, it was so rational. I was going to go to the turn, the rabbis, they were going to know what I was talking about and say, sure, great. We'll, we'll help you. Um, and that started my almost five-year journey to working with the CGLS. Okay. Before we get into that, a few more questions. Did, yeah. was your son able to have a bris? Okay. So my son had a bris. Um, there's different prayers that they can use. We ask them to use the regular ones, um, the ones that don't talk about a need for conversion. And um, we did that. We also found a Orthodox rabbi who, um, based on his teachings and his learnings, came out the opposite way and felt that our child was Jewish. And we did a ceremony with the Orthodox rabbi as well. Um, but we knew that going forward at our very synagogue where we belong, the clergy did not take the belief that our son was Jewish until we were taken to the mikvah. That's got to be a lot emotionally. Um, that sounds like a lot, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So some some might ask why, you know, we're going to get into this in a sec, but like you went in with this determination that I want to change the law, right? Like you, maybe your, your attorney in you, you know, you didn't feel like you can compartmentalize between the Jewish law, ancient Jewish law, and your own experience with, you know, surrogacy and growing your family. You wanted to go in and change the law. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So I am not exactly sure other than just like pure chutzpah, why I decided that this was a, a thing I was going to invest a lot of time in. Other than the fact that as ridiculous as it seems, this was almost like my love letter to my children and to my Jewish community. Because one thing that I feel very strongly about is teaching my children to ensure that the Jewish religion and the Jewish people don't die out on their watch. And I felt like in order to do that, I had to um, continue to teach them that Judaism and conservative Judaism was relevant to them, which I thought was going to be very difficult to do when I was going to have to explain to my children when they got a little bit older, that although they're both from my egg and my husband's sperm, um, and we're both Jewish, um, that conservative Judaism didn't view one of my children is Jewish and viewed the other one um, as Jewish. And I thought that that in light of science and reality was going to be really hard to explain and then try to convince my child, my children that Judaism was relevant. So it's something I felt like I needed to do. And I also, at the end of the day, even if we hadn't been successful and the outcome was never at all certain, 
um, I wanted to be able to explain to my children that I fought as hard as I could for both of them. And, um, and so that's why I did it. Well, that's a beautiful story. All right. So how did you come to meet these two lovely rabbis who are joined here today with us? Yeah. So, um, I met Rabbi Hopman first, a couple years into my cold calling of lots of rabbis and just trying to understand how the CGLS worked, how you get a topic in front of the CGLS. I, I had no idea and there's no website that tells you what to do. Um, but I was very fortunate along the way to keep getting passed along to different people and, um, one of the rabbis in charge of the CHLS connected me with Rabbi Hutman as somebody who might be interested in writing this paper with me. Um, Rabbi Hutman at that point, though it seems so long ago, was newer to the CGLS, but I mean, her resume speaks for herself. She's nothing short of um, amazing. And I remember when I had the call with her, she was the first rabbi I ever spoke to who not only said, okay, well, like this doesn't make a lot of sense, but also said, I think there's a way using Talmudic sources that we can fix this or that we can come up with a paper that presents an alternative that rabbis can use. Because up until then, no one, even if they agreed it was sort of an absurd result, no one knew what to do. Um, and so without her, we would have been you know, really dead in the water. And then Rabbi Brody came along a little bit later in the process um, at a time, also a member of the CGLS, but at a time where we were really working hard through several drafts of the paper to reframe some of our arguments, make them more pa palatable and build, and the name of the game is getting more than six votes. So building consensus. And she had a really, really good ideas on how to reframe certain things and um, gather that type of consensus. So she came on board and the rest is history. <laughs> I love it. All right. So Rabbi Hoffman, tell us, you get this phone call from Jessica. I don't know how many rabbis she's been through by the time she reaches you. What do you think? Is this like a normal, is this what happens in your day-to-day -day life? <laughs> no, it isn't. But as a member of the CJLS, I knew that sooner or later I was going to be tapped to write a teshuva. And when Jessica called me and told me um, the story that you just heard, I realized, first of all, I got angry because as a professor of Talmud, I'm now retired, but I taught uh, Talmud to uh, future conservative rabbis at Jewish Theological Seminary for many years. And I, I could not live with um, the decision that the various rabbis had made that such a child uh, with a non-Jewish gestational carrier, but a Jewish egg uh, is at birth, not yet Jewish. I, I couldn't live with that. It, it kind of turned the Talmud upside down turn rational thinking upside down. Uh, conservative Judaism is known for, I don't know, um, moving with evolving ethical sensitivities. You know, the conservative movement um, decided to ordain women back in the 1980s. The conservative movement decided to ordain gay people. Uh, I don't remember in the early 2000s. And those are huge issues. And then you come to this, which is a sliver of the population and a, a growing sliver, let's say, because of uh, assisted reproductive technologies. But I, 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 I don't know if Jessica on the phone was uh, communicating outrage or anger, but she certainly got me outraged and angered. 
And I said, okay, this looks like something I'm interested in doing. But one more thing I want to add is Jessica had already collected various publications, not from conservative rabbis, but from Orthodox rabbis on this topic. And she sent them to me. And it was, even though I totally disagree with the conclusions of the Orthodox rabbis on this particular topic, but they kind of paved the way that they, they threw into their argumentation some Talmudic sources, which I then was able to interpret in a way that supports the more liberal conclusion, the conclusion that such a child is Jewish at birth. So, you know, with that kind of help from Jessica, it made my life very easy. Then I found more Talmudic sources and so on and so on. So walk us through the process. What's it like to uh, change a halachic position um, in general? And then I'd love to get into specifics around gestational carriers. What do you need to do in order to convince six rabbis uh, that it's, you know, a time to change the law? Let me me just explain something. And uh, Rabbi Suzanne, please uh, join me at any point. Um, the CJLS is composed of 25 rabbis, ge- geographical distribution, age distribution, and so on. Um, the number six was the minimum number of votes you need out of 25 in order to make the decision that gets six votes an approved opinion, meaning uh, any rabbi out there in the conservative movement, if he's not he or she is not required to abide by the decision of six, but um, you can't. Uh, fewer than six, it wouldn't even become a possibility or an option. So we we were looking for six. And so let me just give the end of the story first. In the end, we got nine, okay? A nine in favor, 12 against, and two abstentions. And I'm willing to say that the two abstentions, I'm going to add to the nine because they didn't vote against. So in the end, it was very close, which was a whole lot better than I thought at the very beginning oh, we'll be lucky if we get six, but then there might be 18 who voted against, and that would not look good in the eyes of the public. But the numbers that did come out, I think, look rather good uh, in the eyes of the public. So your question was, um, how does this happen? <laughs> and how difficult is it? Yeah, well, like what's the process? What What does okay. it look like to actually, I mean, we know the research is there, and Jessica came to the table with a lot of research, then what? You said, Jessica, it took you five years to get to this decision? Um, yeah. Well, With the CJLS, it was about two and a half. But just one thing I want to clarify so that um, it, to make it clear. So our paper is an alternative to the existing position and the two live and exist um, concurrently. So we are not overturning the old position. A rabbi can d- can choose. And one of the reasons that's so important, and I, I just want to be clear, and one of the reasons I think that our paper and the existing 97 paper can and should exist is what was crucial about that paper in 97 was it allowed for Jewish women using um, donor egg or embryo donation. At the time, it was referred to donor egg more specifically, that were not from eggs of Jewish women to have children that were Jewish by birth. And we in no way, our paper does not address that scenario. It doesn't reverse the opinion. um, And that was very important. So sometimes I refer to this paper as an alternative, not because I really think it's either or in my situation, though it can certainly be seen in that, but because we wanted to be so respectful of other ways that um, Jewish families are made and not, you know, undercut that, which has been an existing position for decades. 
And then before we get to the to the question, are there other situations where a conservative rabbi gets to choose between yes. different halachic opinions? Okay. There are a many, lot of many. It's it's pretty standard. You I don't know how often you get all 25 voting in the same way, but it's not common. So there are options. So Jessica and I wrote up this paper. I'm going to use the Hebrew term teshuva, responsum, to um, describe it. And um, we submit it to the CJLS, and then it gets scheduled for what's called the first read at one of the meetings of CJLS. And I don't remember, that was November, a year or two ago, whenever it was, it was a disaster. I was devastated. We were attacked. Um, it, I, I, I'm a professor of Talmud. I have written books on the Talmud, and a number of the people on the um, CJLS said she doesn't know how to interpret Talmud. She's misinterpreting it, and so on. To I'm your face? Saying, yes. What? That's what they said. To because, your face at the. Oh, oh absolutely. To okay. my face. Yes, at the meeting, open to everybody's face. And if, if it was recorded, I don't remember. It was, I think it was on Zoom, it was still during the pandemic. But um, at the end of all of that, I. I felt horrible and I was ready to give up. And I really thought that it was all over. And Jessica said to me, no, it's not all over. She's not going to go away. And if this um, constitution, the way the CJS is composed right now, you know, people get five-year terms, you get a new members uh, in and out all the time. Jessica said, I'm not going to leave them alone. And she actually, you know, got me back uh, from an emotional very low essay having been uh, attacked in the way I was attacked. It was, it was, you know, personal and, and on the paper. So then um, Jessica, and I guess I together with her, I don't think Rabbi Brody was yet in on this with us. I don't remember exactly. We knew that the best technique to go forward, politically speaking, was to take into consideration um, the various comments that were made to us. So we, we revamped it. For instance, there was um, reluctance, there was uh, opposition, I might even call it, to for Jessica to include her own story in this. And I felt, and the, 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 the way we put the teshuva together, her story came first. Part one was by Jessica with her story, with the, the law and so on, and, and the science. And then part two was the Talmudic sources, which I have very good argumentation from the Talmud that um, if you if the egg is Jewish, then the emerging child, even from a non-Jewish gestational carrier, is Jewish. It's slightly different terms than the Talmud. Anyway, we went to session two, and Suzanne, you got to remind me when did was when did you so, come on? So after the first the, after the first read, ah. um, I, I I was there at that meeting. I read the paper before the meeting. I, I heard all the comments, and I, I had a similar thought to what Jessica's already talked about. Of this only makes sense, and I have a PhD in neuroscience, so I very much believe that the science needs to have a voice in what's happening. And that science, since the time of the Talmud, has changed a lot, and so having heard what other people were, were saying in this attack they were making, I was able to see it, it as having all of the foundational pieces to the, the argument to be made. And yet I was able to come in and, and see 
ways to just move things around, ways to add in some of the explanation of what, what the history of infertility is in terms of the Bible, in terms of where it's been in our in our history up to the modern day. And since I wasn't wedded to the way that things had been written before, I was able to move a lot of pieces around uh, what I can. Was this the first time that um, surrogacy was brought up to the CJLS in no. your in your knowledge? No, I think it's important to recognize. So the 97 paper talks about surrogacy, albeit I think conceptually, maybe a different type of surrogacy than what we know and understand, you know, gestational carriers, not the use of the egg from the surrogate, that type of thing. But um, there was also attempts by at least one rabbi, if, if not others, around the time of that paper to write a paper with a similar conclusion to what we did, sort of an alternative or a uh, you know, poking at the fact that maybe if you had a concept like my situation where you have egg from a Jewish woman carried by a non-Jewish woman and, you know, could that, could we get there? So that equaled Jewish child. Um, it wasn't successful at that time, but it was tried. And I, I actually connected with that rabbi fairly frequently. He was one of the first rabbis I called years ago. Um, so it had been tried, but there wasn't as much of a blueprint and there wasn't as much traction. I think also just because it wasn't, not that it's out in the vernacular all that much now, but I mean, now you see celebrities using GCs, it's more commonplace than it was before. And the understanding of what it means to use a, a gestational carrier has has evolved. And so I think we were just at a different place. But um, to its credit, and something I love about Judaism and conservative Judaism, they have really continued along the way each time something new has come up with respect to assisted reproductive technology have tended to write papers about this, which is also why I found sort of having a paper from 97 with no alternatives to be so strange because we we really have moved things along over the years and that's been fantastic. You know, I, I'd love to give an opportunity to understand what, aside from the personal attacks, which I never like, um, what were the, you know, what, what, what was the opposition? What were the points that you were trying to um, prove wrong? I don't know. What was the opposition? What? Yeah. Okay. What was what was the what was the other side? Um, I I would say for the majority of the people who were opposed, um, change is threatening to them. That we're talking here about I don't know if calls a basic a principle of Judaism, but this notion that if you're born of a Jewish mother, you're Jewish at birth. Of course, Judaism is open to all. You just have to uh, make a decision, adopt a Jewish lifestyle, dip yourself in the mikvah and so on. But um, it's it's scary. I, I Not for me, really, but for um, those other rabbis, it was scary to think that we're now going to include in the definition of you're born of a Jewish mother it's not just that the uterus from which you emerge is a Jewish uterus or from a Jewish woman, but if your DNA, if the egg that created you, again, we ignore the sperm, um, if the egg that created you is taken from a Jewish woman, and even if the uterus that housed you for nine months is the uterus of a non-Jewish woman, 
that doesn't matter because of all the science and, and law and so on. So they, they just couldn't get beyond that. They, they basically wanted to say, well, I'll say something else that they opposed in just a moment, but their idea was, we're not going to touch this well-known Jewish principle of you're Jewish by birth if the woman who birthed you is Jewish, because that's what they, they saw us changing. And um, the three of us view this as expanding um, who is a Jewish mother or just, yes, the, uh, we're, not, we're not expanding who is Jewish. We're just saying that in addition to those children who emerge from the uterus of a Jewish woman, we're adding another population, not all that great, but probably will get greater as we have more IVF babies. Uh, we're just adding to that. We're, we're not detracting. We're not taking away. By the way, the other big argument, let alone, oh my God, change is scary. Not that they would articulate like that, but um, the other argument was there's an easy fix, easy in quotation marks, just dip your child in the mikvah and, and that's it. And I, I think Jessica has already very effectively um, convinced us that that's not going to work. If a child is Jewish at birth, it, it, it debases the mikvah to say, oh, this mikvah is going to transform this child into a Jew. But he is a Jew or she is a Jew at birth. So, um, you know, that, that was their argument. Why start with new rules if you can just dip the kid in the mikvah? And our answer is no. <laughs> It doesn't work like that anymore. Just dip the kid in the mikvah. You can't take a Jewish kid and dip him in the mikvah and say, "Oh, he's still Jewish. He's new Jewish, whatever." Um, there, there remember, also, I, yeah. There, there also it was the timing of when we had the read, the first read of the paper, was right at the same time that the abortion debate was particularly uh, heated and on people's minds, and so. That was another concern that got brought up is that Judaism has a very clear position that a fetus is not a person and that we have these permissions for abortion and we didn't want to, nobody wanted to overturn any of that and they were afraid that some of the argumentation did that until we were able to make the wording clearer that we weren't talking about the status of a fetus, that the egg has a status in potentia from when it's born as a full-born child, and that Judaism actually knows something about stages of, of life and stages of birth, and that once we clarified that, I think that that is something that calmed some people down. Mm -hmm. um, question, question, gender. How did gender play a role in those nine votes? Oh, if, if you look at the names, again, I'm going to ask my two colleagues here to correct me if I'm wrong about this. There are men and women opposed, and there are men and women in favor. I don't, I don't think gender... Um, played a role in the decision mm -hmm. that I wonder if that like goes back to the you know personal narrative at adding the personal narrative um, but I guess I I'm wrong on that so you know if you have I don't know I, I know I shared with you before that my husband and I had differing opinions on when we were trying to figure out if we needed to convert our embryo donated child 
um, I wonder, you know, I wonder how that played into personal experiences with all of that. Jessica, you were going to say something? Oh. No, I think it was really interesting to me just on a, a personal level to see how it all played out, because I think if you had asked me five years ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, the women will vote, you know, most of the women will vote for it. The Some men will get it, some won't. Or all the people that I viewed as more liberal would vote for it versus the people I viewed as more, you know, conservative. But it it really and it was sort of informative to learn this along the way. It really didn't play out that way, because I think these types of issues um, especially with respect to identity, which is kind of what category this falls under, um, are so much more nuanced. And there are personal or interpersonal experiences that play into this. And um, as well as, you know, people's leanings and their views on Talmudic sources. So it was just so much layered each person. And, you know, in my head, I I, I have sort of figured, like, think I figured out why each person voted each way. And there's a a laundry list of reasons and none of them come down to they were male, they were female, they were right, they were left. It, it was all um, a lot more nuanced than that. And I thought that was an interesting thing to learn that sort of came out of this. Um, and what were some when, of the Talmudic, oh, you were going to say, Rabbi Brody? When you mentioned gender, I, it was also very interesting that this paper was being read at the same time as we also were looking at paper on how do we call up non-binary to the Torah and what 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 sort of gendered and non-gendered language we use around the Torah service. So a gender was very much part of the conversation. Yes. But not not directed at this. Yeah. It was not determinative in the votes on the gender issue. I think that's really interesting. All right, let's talk about the Talmud stories. What stories did you bring to the table to prove your arguments? Um, well, you know, I'm saying I think Suzanne should go first because um, you did something that spoke to rabbis, which is I, I was a Talmudist. And when I wrote my piece of the paper, I dispensed with flowery language and fancy stories. I just said, here's this text and this text and this text. And you see, I've proved it. And that didn't work. So Suzanne came along and do you want to tell them what you did with the well, matriarchs? The first thing I did was I also have my own personal infertility journey, which led me to learning a lot about our matriarchs and about the fact that there are eight biblical women that deal with infertility in, in some form or another. And I felt that that was really an important way of contextualizing the whole conversation of putting it into the context of the infertility story and journeys and recognizing that um, recognizing that we've used surrogacy since biblical times but what we know about how that works has changed so tell me about that (laughs) surrogacy in biblical times what did that look like that looked like concubines that that looked like women saying to their husbands take my servant and make a baby with her and that's going to be my baby and it is counted as that person's baby the same way that we think of with with surrogacy but it involved people actually having relations with each other hands made tail anyone (laughs) yes 
All right. So, and I mean, was there a conversion at that time? Was there, well, Judy, you know, what did it look like in those days? Um, it, oh, you want to say, it, well, in the Bible, um, patrilineal descent is the norm. So as long as it was the father's sperm, uh, which egg, not that I don't know to what extent they understood about egg and sperm, maybe, but um, it didn't matter which woman was the uh, uh, the birthing mother, as long as the, it, the matrilineal descent began in the time of the Talmud for, for various reasons, none of which is we're certain about. But yeah, it was easy. There, there was, my goodness, if we had that today, it would probably um, have made uh, this whole uh, process a lot easier uh, had we been working with patrilineality, but we're not. So um, at least the conservative movement and so on. Yeah, so, so surrogacy that, that, from Talmud, yeah. And then no, what other? Surrogacy from the Talmud, um, as Rabbi Brody just pointed out, was very simple. You just handed your maidservant over to your husband and produced a child that way. And, okay, and, and so how is that proving um, or defending? It, it, it's not proving or defending per se. It's situating this conversation in a in a context so that when when people see that as the introduction in and understand that the conversation is about expanding the idea of who the mother is, when they get to the sources that Rabbi Hauptman had identified, it made a lot more sense and it made the it made the argument from those sources clearer to people. No, I think it's really interesting. Basically, Rabbi Brody, you came in and you helped to kind of set the stage for for some of the Talmudic responses. Um, and and how did you know? So now that you came in, how did the the group of rabbis respond? Now that we've made some modifications to this um, to this decision or this potential decision. I want, I want to answer that. And then first, then everybody else can chime in. Every time we accepted the criticisms and made modifications and revisions to the paper in response, they, they would come back and say, wow, you've made so many wonderful revisions. We love it. In other words, it was almost a political move. I'm not saying it was a political move because the criticisms in many cases were apt and helpful, but uh, on the surface level, it's like, oh, you women, listen to us. You you incorporated our ideas into your evolving teshuva. You know, some of us are now going to vote for it. I don't think we would have had nine votes if we didn't have those three reads and if we didn't have uh, all the modifications that Rabbi Brody introduced and, and Jessica Chad also made changes. Uh, I think I, I made a few myself. But um, yes, it, it just... It's. I'm not going to say it sailed through because you know nine is not the same as uh, 18 votes that could have been in favor, but but we got that nine, and I think I can't exactly count them, but many of them came over on our to our side in response to the revisions that we made. Do you agree? <laughs> I, I also think that between that first read and the second read, the first read was all over Zoom. And the second read, we were together in person in the room. And there were still some people who were Zooming in. But 
the entire tenor of the conversation mm -hmm. felt different. And it was very hard to say if that was because of the revisions that we made or whether it was that difference of actually being face-to-face. -face. Human interaction. Yep. That's really interesting. So Jessica, what did it feel like to, were you, you weren't in the room, right? How did you? Okay. So to the CGLS's credit, there, there is a small amount of papers where not lay people, I think they, they still tend to be rabbis, but people outside of CGLS um, co-opt their papers. And um, the leadership of the CGLS allowed me to be at the meeting. So it started, the first read actually was with a subcommittee. And then I think you can get up to the way the process works up to three reads, and then it goes for a vote unless you pull the paper. Um, and I was able to participate. And um, that was very helpful, I think, for the CGLS to hear my voice and, and part of what I was saying. And um, as tense, especially as the subcommittee and the first read were, I think they were so beneficial going forward. I, I, I got to travel to JTS um, in the spring for the second read, and I got to meet Rabbi Hutman in person and Rabbi Brody. And um, so that was good, um, but also really nerve wracking. I mean, I, I, when I started, didn't even think I would get in front of the CJLS and then there I was. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was really interesting and a really interesting experience. Yeah. I, I want to add something to what Jessica just said. It was particularly at the first read, I think that the people who were opposed were saying, just because Jessica is insulted, just because Jessica is angry, we're not going to make a change in this ancient Jewish law. And that really, really bothered me because that was their tactic of um, not looking at the issue uh, as the issue itself, but kind of just, oh, you know, we've got an angry woman here and, you know, we're not going to change Jewish law to appease Jessica. And thank goodness uh, we worked very hard uh, going forward in the second read and the third read to not let anybody pin this on Jessica's anger, but rather we forced them to see the issue. Um, um, are you two in agreement with me on that? I, I am. And one other thing that we worked really hard on that was very truthful, but was something I, I don't think we did a good job of in the first um, draft was not only pointing out that this wasn't the Jessica paper or the Jessica problem, but also that this wasn't just a an issue that impacted um, that impacted heterosexual married couples, right? So we learned a lot, or I learned along the way in this process, because it wasn't part of my sphere before that I understood, was that there are other families and makeup where this is also impacts them. And that's um, gay men who choose to have children, whether they're married or not, very often they seek out Jewish egg donors only to find out, and then use a, a gestational carrier only to find out the child needs to be converted. Um, and then also single fathers by choice who may take a similar um, path. And we worked really hard to try to make sure that our paper signaled that this was more inclusive. The conservative movement is diverse and becoming even more diverse with family makeups and um, and similar. And we wanted to really signal that and, and honor that because um, when I talk to rabbis in the field who are facing this scenario, Sometimes it's the families look just like mine and sometimes they look 
different. And that's just the nature of, of things. And this impacts more than, you know, just me. So. So how, yeah. how is this being received? Oh, what's, well, what's the response um, been? Um, I, I can, if, first of all, it's a little bit soon to know broadly how it's being received, but along the way, and this process was, I don't know, two years from the time it first came to the CJOS to when it was uh, voted on. I, I spoke to a lot of people, uh, friends of mine, people in the synagogue I go to and so on, just to see, you know, am I crazy um, believing that this is a really important thing to do? Or um, And people looked at me in astonishment, like, what? Conservative movement would not regard Jessica's second child as Jewish at birth? How can this be? So it's like the community has already decided, uh, as far as I can see it, that such a child is Jewish at birth, and it's the rabbis who we needed to uh, kind of bring along and get them to see it that way. I had a very similar reaction to people that I spoke to. And I will say that as various friends and colleagues see it now published on the website, I, I am hearing from other people, oh, I see that you did this. Thank you. Um, you know, and um, so I, th I think that it, it's, it's starting to ripple. Yeah. And, and what I've heard, and I agree with Rabbi Hubbard too, there's, there's the difference. There's a, a difference between what the average conservative Jewish person walking down the street thought the rule was, you know, nine out of 10 times when I asked people, they thought it was either the other way or had never thought about it before, but thought the result was a little odd. Um, and then rabbis. And what we had heard from before our paper was passed from practicing or rabbis that have congregations was for those who had been had faced this situation before, there was a good amount um, who really desired to be able to point to a paper and come up with an alternative um, outcome, but they couldn't. So they really had to say, like, look, I have to advise you that this is the position of the movement. And now that there is a paper um, we know of congregations in the country that are honoring the paper. Again, it's an alternative. No one is saying you can't take a child to the mikvah um, and no one is forcing a rabbi to go one way or the other. And we have also learned that there are um, parents in the community that are expecting via gestational carrier who have taken the paper to their rabbis and the rabbis have um, been very receptive and honored that, which I think is an amazing outcome. So, yeah. Yeah. This is huge. I mean, this is Jessica, look what you've done. And team, obviously, but that to have somebody who to me that's that's huge. It's it's totally huge. It's the it's the power of one. Um power of society. <laughs> uh, I love it. It was your energy, Jessica, that uh, propelled this whole thing forward. So now how do, how do conservative rabbis know that this um, new teshuva exists besides having it on the website? Is there like a, a marketing or advertising that is going to be happening aside from our podcast? Well, your podcast is actually going to be very important. I would say that we need to do more to get the word out because yes, it's on the website. The full teshuva is on the website of the Pinnacle Assembly, but um, not all rabbis are going to go to the website. Not all rabbis, if they're confronted with this issue, are going to remember that there's a statement about this on the website. Well, 
Jessica and I were actually talking about this yesterday. I know someone who writes a blog. I don't want to mention his name because I haven't contacted him, but who's an influential Jewish journalist. And I'm going to write to him and say, maybe you want, here's a topic for your next blog. <laughs> write this up. And um, we'll think of more ways of getting the word out to the conservative rabbinate and really to the public at large. I love it. I am so proud of you all. I, I mean, it's been, it's been tremendous to watch you, Jessica, you know, knowing you for the past few years and really kudos to making change for something that's important. So, so what's next? La last question. What's next? What's the next assisted reproductive technology um, modification and change for the conservative movement? You guys, you're done now, right? <laughs> no, work is never done. You, you know the famous statement. You don't have to finish the work, but you cannot desist. Sure. Okay. But, but Jessica has an answer to this question. Yes. But the good news is that I, I don't need to be involved because um, I need a nap. Um, no, I think that the really great thing and yet another hat tip to the, the movement is all along the way, every time there's been changes, eventually the, the movement has stepped up and written papers or analysis. And I, I think we're at such an interesting time in science and technology, although that's not my forte. And I, I think in the future, they're going to need to address things like uterus transplants, uh, artificial uterus, those types of things I really think are the next frontier, but coming fairly soon. And I expect that the the movement and the members of um, the CGLS will, will take that up as needed. Um, and I'm excited to see what's to come. Yashar Koach team. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Fruitful and Multiplying. And as always, reach out with more podcast ideas and feedback. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Jewish Fertility Foundation.